Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. At last episode's end, I walked you through one possible description of what happened when all but one member of the DeFeo family was brutally slain in their home in Amityville, New York, in November 1974. Namely, that theory was that Butch and his sister, Don, orchestrated the slaying of their father, Ron DeFeo Sr., but ended up killing both of their parents before Don slew three of her siblings, prompting Butch to fatally shoot Don. While we can't be certain that's definitely what happened, it feels safe to say that version of events is the most likely scenario, based on a variety of versions that trickled out as the years passed and lining up those stories with the actual physical evidence. It's frustrating when you don't know for sure what happened in a case, so heads up, things only get more frustrating from here. Part of the reason for that is the same reason a more definitive scenario likely wasn't proffered earlier in the DeFeo murders. The truth is that the Amityville Police Department that arrived at 112 Ocean Avenue was not a paragon of truth and justice. Talk of police brutality, a suspiciously high quote-unquote confession rate, and an uncomfortable number of judgment reversals had dogged the department for years. By 1972, the brutality issue had at least garnered enough attention that the Suffolk County Human Rights Commission won the ability to report cases of police brutality, but the group didn't have the power to investigate or to recommend an investigation. In other words, the commission had no teeth. It could just say, pretty please stop being bad cops. Without any official recourse, the commission did interview people allegedly victimized by police, stories that appeared in the June 11, 1979 issue of the National Law Review, entitled, When Suspects Are Abused, Raphael Abramovitz Systematically Laid Out the Criminal Justice System, Butch DeFeo Found Himself In. Some key points include, number one, Suffolk County Homicide Squad's 97% confession rate, which was crazy high, especially when compared to neighboring counties, Bronx and Kings, which were at 35% and 20% respectively. Two, how incredibly rare it was for the police departments to side against an officer. The department's internal reviews found that nearly 99% of complaints against officers lacked, quote, sufficient cause for disciplinary action. End quote. So while Butch DeFeo watched as his family home steadily filled with police after his whole family had been slaughtered, there already was a solid chance that Butch, as the only survivor, would not only be fingered, but would confess. That likelihood would leave a bad taste in the mouths of residents who would long wonder if the case had been properly solved at all. And that discomfort, in a strange twist, would serve to muddy the waters when eerie stories began surfacing just a year after 112 Ocean Avenue was resold to another family. 
a family that experienced such bizarre occurrences that their alleged ordeal led to Amityville being synonymous with evil. Before we talk about the supernatural in this case, let's dig into the very real. That National Law Review article I mentioned earlier triggered the filings of several civil cases against the police department. In the mid-1980s, New York Governor Mario Cuomo, yes, of those Cuomos, would order a state investigation into possible misconduct of the Suffolk County Police and the District Attorney General. To close this loop, I'll add that on April 25, 1989, the New York Times ran a story on the investigation's findings. It read, quote, The New York State Commission of Investigation in a blistering report has concluded that Suffolk County's top law enforcement officials had grave shortcomings in leadership, condoned crimes by employees, and allowed slipshod police work and prosecutions to bungle drug and murder cases. The commission, ending a three-year inquiry, said it found evidence of perjury, illegal wiretaps, and coercion of witnesses involving Suffolk County prosecutors and police officers, all with the tacit approval of their superiors, end quote. I mention all this because it at least lines up with what Butch DeFeo would subsequently allege about detectives' behavior when he was being investigated. He was suspected immediately, which, okay, totally fair when you're the lone survivor. But he said he asked for a lawyer repeatedly, and those demands went ignored. He also said he was interrogated for more than 21 hours, during which he wasn't allowed to use the restroom or given any food or water. Sometime during all this, Butch said officers began to beat him. Even as he was being tortured, he said he refused to sign the confession police had conveniently typed up for him. Rather, Butch continued to insist that his family had been killed because of Big Ronnie's mob connections. Daisy Egan from the Strange and Unexplained podcast. He also then claimed that his uncle put him up to it, that his uncle had ties to the Genovese crime family. Now, Butch's story didn't add up, so I'm not suggesting here that he was ever wrongly suspected or convicted. In fact, when he named a specific mafioso as the gunman in his family's killing, he named Louis Fellini, a guy with a super solid alibi, and that he wasn't even in the state of New York when the killings occurred. The reason I include the backdrop of questionable police tactics, though, is because it matters when it comes to public perception. A lot of people felt the case had been shoddily solved, so when they heard tales of demons on Ocean Avenue, they were perhaps more likely to entertain those stories than they might have been had detectives been better respected in the community. In one of Butch's many statements, he said that disembodied voices had demanded him to do what he had done. In another statement, Butch claimed to be God. Butch's defense lawyers tried to get all of these statements barred from the trial, but those efforts failed. That's when they switched to the insanity defense. Butch's psychiatrist testified that Butch's long-term use of heroin and LSD, as well as an underlying antisocial personality disorder, supported the theory that he did not know right from wrong when he killed his family. Dr. Daniel Schwartz also said Butch was a quote-unquote paranoid psychotic. Headlines on November 22, 1975, 
read Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. found guilty of murdering family. The jury of six men and six women found him guilty of six second-degree murders on the afternoon of November 21st after two days of deliberations just a year after the murders. If you're curious why second-degree instead of first-degree, at that time in New York, first-degree murder charges were reserved exclusively for cases in which police officers or prison guards were the victims. Nowadays, in most states, you can pretty safely assume that first-degree murder charges are allegedly premeditated, and second-degree tend to be so-called crimes of passion, or unplanned anyway. According to the New York Times, this was the longest case up to this time in Suffolk County history, seven weeks of testimony and evidence. The article mentioned that Judge Stark would sentence Butch on December 4th, and the minimum sentence was 15 years, while the maximum was life imprisonment. In the end, Stark sentenced Ronnie Butch DeFeo Jr. to six terms of 25 years to life to be served at the Sullivan County facility in Fallsburg, New York. While most people believed Butch was guilty, they also felt a bit uneasy about the overall story. His motive seemed murky, for example. This is from a newscast at the time. The question about this crime, which still hasn't been answered, the question of motive. It's reported that Ronald DeFeo Jr. stood to gain about $200,000 in life insurance from the death of his family. Police say they're not ruling that out as a possibility. No doubt it's one of the questions that could be considered by the grand jury this week. If you had trouble hearing that, the gist is that while Butch did stand to inherit insurance money estimated to be valued at $200,000 at the time, that seemed a weak reason to commit a crime so sloppily. Then there was this. The biggest sort of mystery around all of this is the Marlin, the 35 Marlin that was the murder weapon, is an incredibly loud gun. It's the same decibel as like a jet engine. And so how he could have possibly murdered all six of his family members with nobody hearing even the first gunshot, second gunshot, third, nobody in the house, nobody nearby... You can hear that from a very long distance and none of the neighbors ever came forward to say like, you know, I heard some popping noises or, you know, what sounded like a car backfiring. In short, there were questions that lingered long after the jury came back, long after Butch was escorted to prison, long after the tragedy on Ocean Avenue stopped being front page news. Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. died at the Albany Medical Center on March 12, 2021, at the age of 69. He had been moved from the Sullivan Correctional Facility to be treated for an undisclosed illness, but died before showing any improvement. At the time of recording, the Albany County Medical Examiner's Office had not released his cause of death, though Daisy has a theory but I would be willing to bet that it might have been COVID-related because obviously at that time, COVID was a huge problem in prisons. Before we move on to the rest of the story, a reminder that four of the victims in the DeFeo slayings were children, which often seems to be an overlooked fact, especially given how the part two of this tale so overshadows the original crime. So a well-intentioned, if inadequate, addendum. Dawn was an 18-year-old nearing adulthood who hoped to break away from her overbearing parents. Allison, just 13, liked to draw and paint and played the flute in the school band. She had a pet bunny named Snowball, 
and liked collecting flowers. Mark was 12. Being so close in age, he and Allison often helped each other with their homework. And then there was John, who was only nine. The photo of him that ran in newspapers nationwide showed a kid with a broad smile wearing a little suit, likely dressed for church. These kids and their parents were buried in St. Charles Cemetery in East Farmington, New York. Ronald Sr.'s parents joined them in their plot when they died the following decade. When Ron Jr., a.k.a. Butch, died in 2021, the plot was left undisturbed. Instead of being buried alongside his family, Butch was cremated. As is the case with all of these heartbreaking tragedies, in the aftermath of this one, life moved on in Amityville, even for that upscale house with the grisly past. A couple, a sort of newly married couple, Kathy and George Lutz, buy the house for 80000 which was a discounted price from the listing, which was 100000 which, you know, I would imagine that one of them said, well, considering what happened here pretty recently, you know, why don't we give you eighty and we'll call it a day. This was in December 1975. So they bought this beautiful home that has a boathouse and everything for eighty grand very shortly after the murders. It was a decent price for the property, but the Lutzes didn't exactly spike a football. They took what had happened there seriously, they would later say. According to George and Kathy, who were Catholic, they brought in a priest to bless the house. From a documentary called Shattered Hopes, the Lutzes said that the priest, named Father Ralph Pecorero, was besieged by flies and uh, a disembodied voice that told him to get out. If this sounds familiar, there's a reason. Here's the coordinating scene in the 1979 horror film classic Amityville Horror. The film was based on a book released in 1977 and written by Jay Anson, who told the public at the time that what he presented in his tale was 99% true. The only changes, he said, were, for example, quote, the spreading of events from one day to two to make the story more readable. 104 ghostly incidents occurred to the Lutz family, end quote. And the book purports that those ghostly incidents might have been at the root of Butch DeFeo's horrid crimes earlier in the decade. In hindsight, the timing of the Amityville horror film release is kind of wild when you think about it. The DeFeos were killed in 74. Butch DeFeo was sentenced in 75. By January 76, the Lutzes had moved into the Ocean Avenue home. They aided Jay Anson's writing of the supposedly true account of the demonic things that happened there, which was published in September 1977 and still on bestsellers lists months later. And then, in 1979, came the blockbuster movie starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder. Earlier, you heard flies and a creepy get-out from a scene in the film— That stems from a scene in the book in which author Anson described Father Ralph Pecorero coming to the house to bless this mess. The priest basically said, like, the house is fine except for this one room. The priest, when he's in this room, he hears a voice tell him to get out. 
And George and Kathy said, well, this is going to be the sewing room. And, he, and the priest is like, great. As long as nobody sleeps in this room, you should be fine. Which is, <laughs> I didn't know that there was like a manual of how, like how and when and where ghosts and poltergeists like to operate. But I guess if you don't sleep in the haunted room, you're okay. But there were supposedly other issues with the house straight away. The house is very cold. They find that they can't ever really get it to warm up properly. So they're noticing like random cold spots throughout the house. One is in the basement, one is in a stairway, one's in the boathouse. And they couldn't find any like source of the draft. And then Kathy starts to say that she smells like a weird, gross sort of perfumey smell in her bedroom, but it turns into like an unbearable stench. And as she's sort of running out of the room, I guess she passes by the bathroom and she sees it's like filled with something black and disgusting. Now, the drafty house part, I mean, if that's a sign of a haunting, I must be hosting 15 spirits in my place because it's cold everywhere all the time. And maybe the stench and inky bathwater could be explained away by bad plumbing. If those were the only things the Lutz family claimed to have happened, it wouldn't have been much of a book and movie. But alas, there was more. So much more that the Lutzes called a local TV station to come over and investigate, according to a documentary called The Real Amityville Horror. Soon after the Channel 5 news team and their reporter Marvin Scott arrived at the house, people began behaving unusually. Now, before you assume, as I initially did, that this investigation would be composed of level-headed, truth-seeking journalists, that wasn't exactly the case. This was TV news, after all, and Channel 5 had gathered a group of quote-unquote psychics and paranormal investigators to check out the house. Former Channel 5 reporter Laura Didio. Nothing happened to me, but things were happening to people around me. The way people were affected was just crazy. First thing that happened, our cameraman, Steve, got to the landing on the second floor, and all of a sudden he bent over, clutching his chest. He had stabbing chest pain. Mary Downey, whose lower third titles her as a psychic in this documentary, said that when she and her cohorts entered the house, they were hit by a sense of overwhelming sadness. I had the impression of a teenager who had done something that had changed his life entirely, and he had committed something horrendous. There was a window above me, and I saw a face of a young girl looking out at me. Then I heard crying, weeping. So I said, look to the white light, walk towards it, and everybody you love is waiting for you. Among this supposedly investigative crew were Ed and Lorraine Warren, quote-unquote paranormal investigators, who you might recognize because they're portrayed by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga in The Conjuring Universe. That's movies like Annabelle and The Nun, and of course, the OG, The Conjuring. Lorraine and her husband Ed have either had more brushes with the supernatural than anyone in history, or they're a couple of con artists who defrauded the public with stories they knew to be bullshit. In either case, they rose to fame in the late 70s by sharing tales of their alleged first-person encounters with spooks and demons. Their overlap with the Lutzes' Amityville house was one of their highest-profile cases. 
Now, this TV crew arranged gathering happened in March of 1976. The psychics and demonologists and paranormal investigators all united to conduct a seance that they hoped would produce evidence that the Amityville house was indeed haunted. Whether they did or not depends on which participant, you ask. This is Marvin Scott, a former TV anchor who said in Shattered Hopes that he'd been peeved his news director forced him to spend the night with a crew at the house. We sat around the house for several hours into the early morning hours, and uh, we pulled up blankets, we sat on the floor. I did feel a slight chill behind my left ear, but it was a cold March night. Anything was possible. I I didn't feel any unusual presence other than the people sitting at the table. I didn't see anything oozing the walls. I... I didn't hear any strange voices. The only voices I heard were that of my crew wanted to know when we were going to eat the sandwiches we brought along. Uh, and when are we getting out of here? Ed and Lorraine Warren had a different experience. At one point, Lorraine entered the sewing room, the one the priest had sent some evil in, with Marvin Scott, and became overwhelmed. She said, Marvin, I hope this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. Journalist Joel Martin Lorraine Warren at one point stated that during the 1976 seance that she had gone into the master bedroom and that the DeFeo's bed was the same bed that had been there on the night of the crime, only the mattress had been changed. And she supposedly uh, sat on the bed and and relived the, the whole tragic experience, the shots that were fired into the DeFeo's. But there were problems with the Warrens' reported experiences. For one, Marvin confirmed that Lorraine did indeed say, Marvin, I hope this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. Yet he was sitting right by her and insisted that the only creepy thing he sensed was her. I felt nothing but the chill of the night in that cold sewing room, darkened except for the light flickering from the candle. As for the bed story... But when you look at the photos from that night and you look at the bed that was present that night... It's not even remotely close to being the same bed that's in the crime scene photos. So once again, this proves that this is a complete fabrication on the part of Lorraine Warren, embellished for the sake of selling the story. In short, the reason Daisy Egan covered this case on her podcast Strange and Unexplained was to examine the paranormal elements. To be transparent... The reason I'm comfortable delving into it as part of Crimes of the Centuries is because I think it was a hell of a fraud case. Now, I recognize that could be a controversial stance. Lots of people might argue that telling ghost stories doesn't amount to fraud, and I get that position. But there's solid reason to believe that most of the key parties in this tale made up most, if not all, of their supposed supernatural encounters, and then they sold those stories labeled as truth which means people spent money buying into something that the seller knew was a lie. I have a moral problem with that. Almost as much of a problem as I have with the 2005 Amityville horror remake starring Ryan Reynolds, but I'll save that story for Threads. Yes, Threads. I refuse to reference the former bird site. Anyway, almost as soon as the Lutzes began telling folks about the supposedly mysterious happenings in their haunted house skeptics abounded. Some self-described paranormal researchers, so people who tended to be predisposed to believe this kind of thing could happen, 
were reluctant to accept George Lutz's invitation to check things out because he didn't seem genuine. His pitch, in fact, felt rehearsed. Speaking here is Alexandra Holzer, daughter of the late Hans Holzer, whom she called the original ghost hunter. My father didn't want any part of it, so a lot of people have to be aware of that he was contacted, but he was very easily able to say, no, thank you. The reason was that George Lutz quickly rattled off the names of various demons he was sure inhabited his house. Asked how he was so familiar with occult matters, he said he'd read up on it, which might not seem like a red flag if you assume he started that research after he bought the Ocean Avenue house and began suspecting it was haunted. But Lutz actually mentioned having visited a specific Long Island occult shop that had closed more than a year before he bought the house. That meant that when he bought the place, he had long been reading up on occult matters. Now, to several of the paranormal investigators George Lutz contacted, he came across as a publicity hound, pure and simple. The late Stephen Kaplan was so sure of it, in fact, that he offered to investigate totally for free, but with a caveat. This is his friend Joel Martin telling that story. Stephen Kaplan comes to me, and I'd known Stephen for all of his work in parapsychology for several years at that point. I want you to do a story about an unhaunted house. I got a call from the people who live there now. They want to talk to me because they want me to research that possibly the house is haunted. I said, okay, now what? Well, I'm suspicious about it and I don't think it's true. We had a time to meet and I said I would be glad to research the house. I promised I would do it, no charge. I wasn't charging, I don't want their money, I don't do this for money, he says. But I also said, if I find it's not true, I'm gonna tell them that as well. He said, I never heard again from George Lutz. Kaplan took this to mean that Lutz's story was total BS and thus began a public feud in real time between Kaplan and the Lutzes. Several times on TV programs, Kaplan would come on to argue that the Ocean Avenue house wasn't haunted and he'd lay out his reasons for believing so. Usually George Lutz wouldn't appear in person to debate Kaplan, but sometimes he deigned to at least address his criticisms via a telephone appearance. Oftentimes, Kaplan would find a hole in the Lutz's story. For example, they claimed that the demon inhabiting their house once slammed a window down on their son Danny's hand, a back and forth from shattered hopes. When Dr. Kaplan and George Lutz began to debate this on WBAB in one of the shows, the whole story began to fall apart. said, so you brought your son to the hospital when the window fell on his hand. Which hospital? Um, well, it was Brunswick Hospital in Amityville. Okay, George, so if I go to Brunswick Hospital and subpoena the records, it's going to show that you brought your son there on... Well, well, we didn't really bring him to the hospital. We brought him to the doctor's office. Okay, so, you know, you tell me the name of the doctor's office and I'll go and I'll... Well, we kind of just, like, bandaged his hand and treated it at home. Any attempts to corroborate any portion of the Lutz's tales repeatedly failed. And yet, the legend of their month living at 112 Ocean Avenue is still inspiring spin-offs, remakes, and sequels to this day. While the late Stephen Kaplan wasn't keen on the story that the Lutz's Amityville home was haunted by evil demons, Ed and Lorraine Warren 
apparently had far fewer reservations about the tale. They would go on to insist in multiple subsequent interviews that they felt an evil presence in that house. Lorraine said that during the 1976 seance, she actually called on a late Franciscan monk and priest from Italy for help. Padre Pio was a very holy and pious priest. This is Lorraine talking to Tony Spera, the host of a show called Seekers of the Supernatural. And the reason I have so much devotion to him, Tony, is not only because of what happened to me in Amityville, but when I went in there, I really didn't know why I felt as uneasy as I felt. And this man had the gift of discernment, plus he physically fought devils in his life. He played such an important role of our investigation. Now, Padre Pio had been dead for years before this 1976 seance, so the way Lorraine asked for his help was by holding onto a relic of his. And her proof that he showed up is a photograph from that night, shot on infrared film in the darkness of the house, in which you see Lorraine and some others chatting in the background with a deer head hanging on the wall in the foreground. There's a shadow casting a shape from one antler onto the next in this photo. And if you zoom in closely, that shape kind of looks like a face. It's sort of like the knot in the wood of my childhood closet door that my imagination turned into Jesus when I was lying on my floor pretending I was too tired to clean my room. Lorraine, of course, saw deep meaning in this face-like shape. And look at that photograph, Tony, and you see the outline of the very man that you just looked at the portrait of before, the photograph the, the hood, of. The That's beard, astonishing. The nose. Isn't it? Now, at this point, you might have a few questions, but never fear. Tony Spera, the show host, asked a key one for you. Has anybody looked at these pictures and verified that they're yes. not fakes? Father Negre mm-hmm. looked at this photograph. He was a very close associate of Padre Pio's, and when mm-hmm. he looked at it, He knelt down and he blessed himself and he he said, Padre Padre Pio. So there you have it. And that wasn't the only photograph taken with ultra-sensitive infrared film that night. Here's Ed describing another image that at first glance appears to simply be a picture of a hallway and two door openings with a staircase handrail in the foreground curving left. If you zoom in on the intersection of the handrail with one of the bedroom doors, you might see what Ed sees. You see what looks like a small boy's face looking out with bioluminescent eyes. This was the room of one of the young boys who was murdered there. Isn't that eerie? A lot of people would say, well, is that the spirit of the young boy? No, it is not the spirit of the young boy, but it is a diabolical spirit with luminescent eyes that appears in that home to confuse the investigators. You think that is an evil spirit, Ed? Positively. Everything about this house was evil. It's the certainty with which he talks that always gets me. Could it be the spirit of a slain child? No, no, clearly that's an evil spirit with crazy eyes trying to confuse investigators because that's how spirits roll. Now, I love The Conjuring Universe. I'm a horror movie buff in general. So on the whole, I have no issue with these stories and I certainly don't blame or even question people who want to believe them. But it's worth noting that the Warrens had financial incentive to see what they wanted to see in those 76 seance photos. 
they managed to secure a book deal about their quote-unquote demonology work in part because they bolstered the Lutz's story. That book, originally published in 1980, was called The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren, The True Accounts of the Paranormal Investigators. That book fueled even more media appearances, and if you search newspaper archives, you can see that their public speaking appearances exploded too. Those can pay serious money. I don't know how to fact check this, but several celebrity sources online estimated that the Warrens were worth upwards of $12 million when Ed died in 2006. Lorraine died 13 years later in 2019. It's possible, of course, that they believed the tales that made them millionaires. One person who was skeptical, though, was William Weber. He was an attorney who had defended Ron DeFeo Jr., a.k.a. Butch, when the young man stood trial for slaying his entire family back in 1974. He said in a lawsuit that after the Lutzes fled the Ocean Avenue home, they invited him back one time. He did this, as Daisy Egan said, because their feeling was, this needs to be known, that the house is haunted, because clearly this is probably what drove Ronald to kill his whole family. So they invite William Weber over to the house to show him how haunted the house is, and the three of them proceed to get incredibly drunk. They drink four bottles of wine between the three of them, and at some point in this drunken ghost hunt, they basically decide to write a book. Weber comes out eventually and says, like, we were just sort of creating ideas by the end of the night, just give and take, you know, like a pitch session. In his lawsuit, Weber said that basically he helped create the tales that Jay Anson eventually described in his best-selling book, and damn it, I didn't get a cut of anything. As the lawsuit unfolded, that priest I mentioned way earlier, the one swarmed by flies who supposedly heard the house command him to get out, said, actually, I was only reached by the Lutzes by phone. I never went into the house myself, and that whole scene was completely made up. Butch backed all this up in an interview, though he's kind of an unreliable narrator, so take that for what you will. He made up the story about the cat and the red-eyed pig and all that and this and that. And this was all Weber's idea, over many bottles of wine. But here's the thing. It's a good story. A macabre one, granted, built on the horrific murders of six members of the DeFeo family, most of whom were innocent children whose deaths haunted the Long Island area well before the Lutz family claimed to be haunted for real, for real. That gruesome origin aside, the tale remains a good story nonetheless. Whether you believe it or not, doesn't change that. As the Warrens said in a 1980 press release before one of their speaking engagements, quote, There has never been a scientist, past or present, who could disprove the fact that haunted houses, ghosts, apparitions, and demonic spirits do exist. End quote. I'd go a step further and say, and there never will be. Certainly not as long as there's money in making up the stories. To research this case, Jen Erdman relied on several books, including Jackie Barrett's The Devil I Know, My Haunting Journey with Ronnie DeFeo, and The True Story of the Amityville Murders, and Rick Osuna's The Night the DeFeos Died, Reinvestigating the Amityville Murders. 
We both dug into newspaper archives, too. Special thanks to fellow podcaster Daisy Egan, my partner on Grab Bag Collab, a Patreon-based podcast collective where you can get at least four separate ad-free shows for just $5 a month. Join us at www.patreon.com slash grabbagcollab if you would be so kind. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>